City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, and after the acres and acres of tar and cement, we've landed in uh, city limits, which might be. Never mind. Um, and uh, <laughs> and that was Andy. All right, Andy. Andy Britt over there. I'm Kevin Healy, and that's it today. It's just us, Andy. It's the old. That's all right. Helen I haven't Reddy. really done my homework. No, the Helen Reddy song, "You and Me Against the World," or something. Yeah, but no, we're not against the world today. We're for the world. Um, and it is energy and uh, and related days, and we're going to have. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have hopefully have Chloe Aldenhoven again from uh, from the um, from Friends of the Earth, who's the energy and coal and gas person. Because of all that's been happening about gas in the last few days, led by a a conference around the issue and uh, all the things that have come out. Plus, of course, Tony Abbott's speech to the Flat Earth Society and mm. the fact that nothing's happening. Um, so we'll hopefully have Chloe, but she may have a problem because of other things in her life happening around the time we want to talk to her. Uh, and we hopefully, as I say, hopefully we'll talk to her. But if she can't come on, we're going to have our old mate, Professor Paddy Moriarty, who's on standby. He's good enough to put himself on standby. Um, If he doesn't come on today, even if he does perhaps, we will have him on in two weeks' time, the fourth Wednesday, when Dave Kerrin's coming back to talk about Earthworker again. And uh, because Earthworkers, a lot of the the the, um, the worker control factories, it's it's trying to organise are around renewable energy projects. So we thought it'd be good to have Paddy join in that conversation. So he's always very interesting. <laughs> have a chat. Yeah, that's right. So it's one. It's either Chloe or Paddy in the last half of the program. And our first guest we're going to go to shortly. We're not going to have our usual rave because. Um, it's Helen Vandenberg, who an accidental guest today because I, I rang her number by accident yesterday. I rang the wrong number. I rang, I, I rang what I thought was someone else yeah. to get someone else. And Helen was there and talked about a few things. I said, well, come on and talk about it tomorrow. So she's coming on, but she has a limited time as well. So we'll take her in a couple of minutes, in cool. about a minute. Um, and she instructed me not to pour the tea before I talk to her. So what I'm going to do is pour the tea before I talk to her. There we are. That'll thrill Helen no end. Is the tea only one cup today? Because you need one. No, nah, okay. Can I ever talk you? <laughs> okay, look, we will take a break and take Helen because she does have to get away. And we're going to talk. What we're going to talk about mainly at the, this morning is, uh, and she's pretty frustrated by a number of issues at the moment, but uh, a, a plan to increase the curfew rules, and well, not increase them. Yes, I suppose it is increase them to increase the curfew and louder noises overnight, etc. At Essendon Airport, which is annoying the locals no end. So, Helen, after this break. Here we are, back on air, Helen Vandenberg on the line. Helen, I hope you enjoyed the pouring of the tea, did you? No. No? (laughs) I feel like a naughty little boy now, really. (laughs) I didn't have the radio on. I've just put the mobile down because I was talking to Harry. Oh, I'll pour a bit more than if you like. (laughs) (laughs) Hello to the crew. Hi, how are you going, Helen? How are you, Helen? It's just uh, just Andy and me this morning. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? We've got two 30-somethings on the show and show how desperate they are to get away from it. One's currently in America and one's in England, so... Um, that's taking getting away from the show pretty seriously. It is indeed. It is. Um, but they'll be back within a month or so, and uh, we'll have them all, all back on air again. Helen, the, the Essendon Airport, I noticed they've planned, Shane, I know you told me yesterday as well, but they're planning to um, lift curfews or make louder noises overnight. What exactly are they planning? And what's what they're the... planning is to... There are two things. Essendon Airport has the type of plane restricted because of weight, um, which is currently um, 45,000 and they want to lift it to 55 or 58. Mm. Um, and that's kind of all day. Oh, no, that's at night, sorry. And they want the jet curfew taken off. So they want permission for jets. And what they're offering to trade is, uh, and limit that to 100 um, landings, no takeoffs because they want to limit the noise to 90 uh, decibels, so, um, and there'd be no takeoffs, just landings, 
and it would be more convenient because pilots, they wouldn't have to land planes elsewhere and then bring them in the next day. They'd be able to land. It means that the planes could, you know... Anyhow, it's all for the convenience... And, and we're talking private jets here, aren't we, really? Private I mean, and when commercial. When you say jet, come, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, private and commercial jets. Basically, the community is furious on two counts. The consultation process is a farce, so I'm writing a letter to the Commonwealth Ombudsman about that because one of the criteria for public consultation is that the community, the public be adequately informed and notified. In this case, what happened was the, um, the Aviation Consultative Group people were told on the Friday that the consultation was starting on the Monday and Essendon Airport was supporting the changes. So, um, Peter Cahill, is it Cahill? Yes, um, Khalil. Uh, Khalil and um, Danny Pearson from Essendon. Peter Khalil is the federal member for for Wills, which presumably covers that area. They rang Bill Shorten and they decided they'd hold a public meeting, which they did, and I didn't know a thing about it because we don't get a local paper, except that um, people rang me. Surprise, surprise. So I went along as an ordinary public member. Um, There were about 200 people there, very, very angry, and threatening class action because they said the young ones got up were really impressive. One, for a change, it wasn't just us. Well, there's no group anymore, but we weren't... We used to talk about the World Health Standards, which are 40 decibels at night now, not 45, which it used to be. And he was quoting from research done in America and elsewhere about the impacts of noise on, on health, which we have been saying for 15 years. And so it was, and these young ones said, look, we bought into an area where there was an airport be, that, because it was convenient, but there was, it was an airport with a curfew. Take away the curfew and we'll start class action because you've changed the conditions that we're living under and we will um, sue you. We'll take a mm. class action what, what are the current curfew conditions, by the way? <laughs> It's 11 to 6 a.m., the curfew time. I mean, the planes... Yeah, but jets do come, do take off because um, organ transplants go by jet and that's an emergency and that occurs, but not every night. And they, the um, sweetener was we won't let any helicopters like the media helicopters take off at night because they conform to the weight restrictions. And so that's been a curse. But, but there's only about 13 of those in a six-month period. So they're offering to take away 13, which if you double, it's 26. So take away those 26 helicopters, which, of course, the noise is horrendous, and we will give you 100 jets instead and only landing. The assumptions behind the paper are, uh, well, both infuriating and ludicrous because their assumption is that um, we're just no different from the Gold Coast, Brisbane Airport or Sydney Airport. If you look at the runway lengths for all those airports, <laughs> we, have, we are smaller by about a third to a quarter compared to the others. All those other airports have a public safety zone around the runway, which means you've got a crash zone is what we used to call it. Essendon Airport doesn't have it. All those airports have people in the control tower, so they're not only watching radar, they can see what is happening. We don't have that at Essendon Airport. From 10 o'clock at night, it's taken over by Melbourne. Now, Melbourne can see what's on the radar, but, you know, if there's someone with their transponder off um, flying around in the sky, um, you can't see that on your radar. Mm. So anyhow... um, There are all those safety issues. And the other thing is those other three airports all have fire services and we don't have that at Essendon. And they're trying... And, you know, the implication of the paper is that it's only 90 decibels, you know, and aren't we good? We're not letting them take off, which... And we have people in North Essendon who've had 103 decibels from the current planes. And though they're saying that, you know, well, we've got the noisy old ones and you could get the new good butte ones that are quieter... By comparison to another jet, they're quieter. But there's no guarantee that they, they will be the jets that will be flying in and out of Essendon anyhow. Mm. And the World Health, as you say, says 45 at night. Uh, the World Health Organisation also says 50 um, 
for um, road traffic, uh, and in fact... we it's 63 for road traffic. Well, they say 50, but we operate on a 63 to 68 yeah. with Vic Roads, yeah. and that's very high indeed. We think it's far too high, and it's an, ex- it is. It's an exponential, it's an exponential um, system. So once you get to 90, 95, they're talking about you getting to incredibly high levels of noise. Well, you're not, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary imposition on community health because even if your sleep is not disturbed, your heart will race when a loud noise occurs. It's, you've got no control over that, which is one reason there's a lot of heart disease. There's higher incidence of heart disease in people around airports. And the other thing is they're risking kids' health because if kids have disturbed sleep, their growth is affected. That's a potentially life lifelong implication and what we don't seem to be able to get the politicians and the airport to understand is that this airport must go it's had a 40-year extension anyhow now because July 1971 was when they moved the domestic flights out it is time for this airport to go and the other thing that people were upset about was that we haven't got the results of the um, review of the of the Transport Bureau's investigation into the accident, the tragedy on the 21st of February. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, aspects that that inquiry is looking into is what was the planning process for putting the building, the DFO building there, and was that adequate? Because CASA has agreed to everything that has happened at air, the airport. Yeah, right. which, is, which is the authority that oversees them. Yeah, they're the, yeah. They're the safety, the yeah. Civil Aviation Safety That's Authority. Right. Yeah. And they've agreed with everything... Well, the S stands for safety, does it? Yeah, well... <laughs> Go on. We, we could think of a lot of other names. Mm. Never mind. The, the point is we're not, we have no confidence in CASA. We have no confidence in the airport's um, willingness to listen to the community. And the other thing that I am personally sick of is the secretive nature of the... Um, the Community Aviation Consultative Group meeting because the we have the federal politician and a state politician and they each select a... Um, now, Bill Shorten and Peter choose the community representatives, right? Now, we get no report back from that. I mean, I've been reading the minutes that are on the website just to find out what's going on and it looks to me like everybody's in furious agreement. Yeah. So... We, it's just another one of these sagas that yeah. goes on in well, the West well, that Chris, you don't have in the East. Chris Cowan, who's the chief executive of Eastern Airport, which of course is now privatised and it's part of the Lindsay Fox empire, um, he said the airport would, uh, he, he said he supported the changes, which is a hell of a surprise, isn't it? Seeing oh, they've prob- been lobbying for them it's for probably, a long time. I think it's probably his idea. Um, said the airport would cap them, et cetera. But um, obviously, you know, it's, this has come about because the airport is there now purely to make profit. Well, yeah, well, it was subsidi- it's been subsidised for a long time by the community. I mean, the taxpayers paid for the facilities to be built there. And the other furphy here is that, you know, it's a big employer. It is because there's car yards over there. Uh, It's not the aviation part that's creating the jobs. Um, There's um, a shopping centre with um, a a lovely market, supermarket market, fresh market there. Um, There's... Uh, I'm not going to mention the big names that have got themselves into there too. There's a hotel that's opened up over there. There That's where the jobs are. And the point is that land, once they rehabilitated the contaminated section of it and once they left the the landfill alone in the area where they used to do firefighting protection, so long as they um, left that land alone... They could have so many other more facilities there that would create jobs in this area. So I see no economic argument for keeping it as an airport. It's a matter of it's an airport for privilege and for people who want to save money because it's cheaper to fly out of Essendon. One of the reasons it's cheaper to fly out of Essendon is the lower level of security. Mm. You don't see the police dogs over there. You don't see um, rigorous examination of people going on to the jets. I've, we've been over there and watched for a whole afternoon and found jets landing and people just getting into their uh, 
those long cars that take them away with the tinted windows, and you're sort of thinking, well, where's their luggage? What's happened mm. to their luggage? <laughs> yes, good question. But also the, the capping movements during curfew at 100, that's 100 per night, I assume. No, it's 100 per year, they said. But that's, oh, a, that's the year. thin edge of the wedge. I mean, 100 if per you, night seemed extraordinary. I must no, say, okay, it's 100 that's per the year. thin edge of the wedge because if you allowed them, they, as people said, look, they have to take off the next day, so what noise are they going to make the next day? They're going, if they're 90 there, they're going to be 100 taking off, or very close to 100. You know, and thunder is between 100 and 120, and that's generally regarded as frightening noise. So, you know, we'll land at night and we'll be, you know, maybe 89 and in the day we'll take off at over 100. So what they want to do is bring jets back. Now, I'm at the end of the west, um, the east-west runway and that means that I'll go back to the noise that we had for the first six, seven months we were in this house and that was scary. But, I mean, we came because the airport was closing and therefore we wouldn't have that noise. We also have the noise from... Melbourne Airport and the planes coming into land on a day like today fly over the east-west runway as they and then they turn towards Tulla. So we have that noise as well. Mm. And in addition to that, Melbourne Airport's third runway, if they get it, will also complicate the scene around here. And that's going to be pretty close to houses again, isn't it? Well... Melbourne Airport is considerably bigger and does have a bigger crash zone around it or public safety zone mm. around it than Essendon does. Well, isn't it? None, but is... the, the issue out at Tullamarine is that they're going to be flying over areas where they haven't flown over before because when Gorton gave permission for Melbourne Airport to be in its current position, he said, I'm doing it because I've been assured there's no impact on existing communities. And he was right. They took the flight paths so that they didn't go over Gladstone Park and West Meadows. But with the third runway, they will. So that's a breach of a promise. Yeah. But, you know, everybody just wants to forget that. And besides that, when the north-south runway is the most frequently used runway at Tullamarine, except for jets, um, but when they do take off to the north, they're definitely in Melbourne Airport's controlled airspace. And recently there was an incident where there was only about 300 feet of separation. That's right, that was on the news, wasn't it? There was um, a bloke from the President Ga- Gowan Bray Residence Group, uh, Shanaka Pereira, he said that he can see the faces of the pilots, they are that close to my house. Are we supposed to bear the health impacts of a 90 decibel limit just so business jets can land at convenient times for them? Mm. So he's not too happy. No, well, nobody was, and the younger ones would be very adamant, you know, they, they change this and there's a class action. And I thought, great. And now the politicians are the ones organising the meetings, not us. Hmm. So let them feel the flack. And what, in terms of uh, Shorten and Khalil, what's their position on it? Well, I don't know Khalil's position because I haven't asked him direct. I know what Bill Shorten's is. Yeah, he... he well, I mean, article, Which is pro-Essendon Airport. Right, and well, Khalil's the only quote I got from Khalil was he said they should should not should hold on to any hold off any changes until that report on the DFO crash. But that's all he said. Well, that's said. not the community yeah. view. The community yeah. view was, um, and the other thing that came up was that they people wanted clarification as to look every time an air service an emergency services um, plane goes out, does it mean it's responding to a triple zero call? Because there's a bit of cynicism about that especially when you know that a lot of the complaints are due to uh, shift change over time when people are whizzing back in their helicopters and cutting it, you know, um, coming in on the non-friendly flight path. And um, because there are designated emergency services, people feel that they're um, stretching it a bit and... Mm. So the, the people are asking for clarification about that too. What, what stage is it now at then? Where does it go from here? Well, you have to have your submission in by yesterday. Yeah, I've got yesterday, an extension yesterday to the was 20th. closing day, yeah. Well, I've got an extension to the 24th because I've been writing questions to the curfew people and um, I said, well, why don't you give me your response? I need an extra mm. week. Anyhow, they were happy to give me until the 24th of October because councils asked for an extension to then. But this is the other thing. If you don't properly inform the public as 
notify them as to the issue. Now, the airport has not put out any leaflets around the surrounding suburbs. And remember, the noise complaints also go to East Melbourne, where residents are fed up with the media helicopters and police helicopters and other helicopters. Mm. So they haven't notified the public properly. So I'm going to write to the Commonwealth Ombudsman and say this process is a sham um, and it needs to be done properly. So proper notification needs to be given. We've had no access to air services to ask them any technical questions because it's been done by the infrastructure department. That was my next question. Who's conducting this study? The infrastructure department, mm. and I would have thought it would have been better done by air services, um, who could answer some of the questions we've got about airport operations. Even if we didn't like the answers, at least we'd get them. But we don't get any information. Um, I rang the noise ombudsman because I wasn't too sure how this process was running and asked for some clarification. Um and they explained that it was infrastructure and need to talk to them. And they also and I said, well, you know, we needed access to air services. And they said, well, we they the ombudsman's office does encourage air services, and they do go out to the public and put up stalls and engage with the public to assess people's opinion. But we've never had that around here. Mm. So. Well, here yeah, it's it's just another serious. Well, as you, you as you were saying to me yesterday, it's quite frustrating because um, it's the old story of uh, not proper non proper negotiations and consultations. Well, I think the system's getting more and more autocratic and less democratic, mm. and that's a worry for everybody because the thin edge of the wheat. I mean, we've never had a participatory docu- um, democracy, but when they're even just um, feigning consultation, then it's quite a worry because yeah. we, we have this feigned consultation with um, the planning process. 85% of VCAT um, appeals get upheld in favour of the developers. So we've got a, a truly broken public consultation system in Victoria and probably elsewhere. Yeah, on, on which I, I mentioned at the start of the show that you're an accidental guest today in a sense because I rang your number yesterday thinking it was someone else's. Um, but um, in that conversation, you did express your usual um, pleasure with the EPA and what a great <laughs> job it's doing. <laughs> well, you know, the whole world's changed to waste energy. They've been doing it for decades, Right. And we have been at the government for ages about waste energy. And how, And they say, oh, well, you have to be able to guarantee a supply of waste for the waste energy and there's a choice of processes, right? And we said, well, how are you going to guarantee that if you're, we've got an increasing amount of airspace because quarrying still goes on, yet down at Werribee we have waste mountains and, you know, Wyndham wants to keep putting more of them up. How are you going to guarantee that if... On the one hand, the policy says reduce reliance on landfill. On the other hand, you get out there and you give people permission to operate for the next 30 years. And so that's the waste that ought to be going into waste-to-energy plants. When are you going to make the connection? Now, I'm telling you, if I can work it out that quickly, that easily, it's not rocket science. No, but obviously it is to those who have to make the decisions. <laughs> well, anyhow, one good news is uh, the government has decided that we will not have any more e-waste in landfills after the 1st of July next year. And that means anything that's got a plug, anything that's got a lead that has a plug that goes into the wall is now classified as e, will be classified as e-waste. Anyhow, they've given us a consultation period and they've put out the discussion paper and on one thing it says we have to have the re- response back by the 25th of December and on the other one it's the 25th of January. So I think I might take the January date as the yeah, real one. fair enough. And it just shows, but I mean, shows and, how they're usually in control of things as always. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the Yarra Act is up. Well, bravo, that's good. What's happening out west? Yeah, well, the west... The West cops it all the time, of course, and that's... Well, we're not going to let that rest, are we, either? No, no. Well, look, we'll follow up on that before the before that date and get more information on that specific subject then. Um, yes, but, I yeah. mean, it's very good news that the, for, that the Moreland Council had the courage and the, well, the wisdom, I would really say, to unanimously vote 
not to um, proceed with anything on that land that contaminated that site land. until there was yeah. a proper audit of the site. So bravo, Moreland Council. Yeah, that's that Faulkner site that was an old chemical joint and, you know, it's... I think everyone agrees it's pretty badly contaminated. Yes, well, I think that'll look pale, pale in significance when you look at the munitions site. <laughs> That's right. Or your uh, your famous toxic waste dump at Tullamarine, even. Hmm. What's, what's bubbling down below that? Well, nothing good, I can tell you no. that much, but I won't go into the... the um, 50-odd chemicals that we have to look at and see what levels they're up to. But then again, we've got a flare over there that we don't think is properly monitored. So what's new? Yeah, I think we've opened the way for another another discussion in two or three weeks, so Helen, to, to <laughs> fill all that in. <laughs> I think you should find another guest, get some variety. <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're okay, you're good. You're, okay. You're, even if I ring you by accident, you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Okay, Thanks, Helen. Andy. Thanks, Thanks. Bye. Bye. Uh, Helen Vandenberg there, who's, of course, a long-term activist in the, the northwestern suburbs of Melbourne and uh, and keeps battling away against all these things and is, uh, I think, always a welcome guest on the show. Um, okay, we'll take a break. We're going to have a crack at getting Chloe Eldenhuben on, um, and if not, we'll get Professor, the old Professor Moriarty on, But um, so, so it's good. a question of which one's available. Okay, and Chloe's uh, going to a voicemail thing, so I assume she isn't available. She said she mightn't be, so we'll uh, see how we go. So I just thought I'd have a couple of the things we normally say up front just before we do go to P- uh, Patty Moriarty, but um, this is one that should please you no end, I reckon, um, I reckon Andy. Oh, um, here we go. We all know that Coke having a bit of trouble with the moment, you know, financially, the Coca-Cola Amatil, the company. Really? And it's a pity because they moved from, Amatil moved from cigarettes to um, junk food and Coca-Cola. So it's, you know, it's, it's always been involved in off. community health. It's one mm-hmm. of its big interests. Um, but the the new wonderful one is, well, they recently, we pointed out recently, they went to, they went from diet to know something or other. They keep talking all these names, but no then they sugar, keep saying no zero, etc. But mm. then you find that they go to another one which has even less of what the zero they had in the first one, That's which is interesting. hard to keep up. It is a bit hard to keep up. But anyway, you'll be pleased to know they're about to bring out for this summer uh, a Coca-Cola coffee-flavoured Coke. Oh, actually. Coffee-flavoured Coke. Wouldn't that be a treat? Yeah. Oh. Might do my own experiments at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, what are you going to use for cola? <laughs> yeah, no, I have to figure that out. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, that's but well, I suppose that's that's not bad. You really hit the old caffeine trick mm. with the old with the old Coca Cola co- coffee one. <laughs> People would be coming off the roof. Um, one of the good news stories this week, though, was the Nobel Prize because it goes so often the Nobel Peace Prize has gone to you know people who just don't deserve it at all, and we can name a fair few but won't. But um, the um, international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons won it this year, and that, and of course it does have a, an Australian connection anyway. But it's just uh, worth commenting on and noting that they got it. Uh, it has led to a number. I mean, it's interesting the the usual suspect columnist in the Herald Sun, the bolt through the head bloke, uh, he came out and attacked them winning it. Uh, uh, yes. He's an idiot. Surprised to know. He never read his articles. Because, of no, well, he. Pity you there. Well, you look at the headlines, and occasionally, if the headline's interesting, you read on to see how he makes the argument. Mm. And his argument against them winning was that they they got their heads in the sand, so to speak, because the only way you stop nuclear war is having nuclear weapons. Yeah, well, that's right. He's got it. He's got it. He's got it all sorted out. And then yeah. I heard Tony Abbott come out with some crazy statement about carbon emissions and it helping stuff grow. And Tony, oh, what's Tony, to the world. Tony said that. Well, he was speaking to the Flat Earth Society. I think it was in London, wasn't it? <laughs> and he was. Um, yeah, his argument was. That, well, one he, he reiterated. He said, oh, you know, I said years ago that climate change is crap," and he. Of course, when he was Prime Minister, he said it wasn't, but then he now he says it is again. It is again. Um, but also, it's crap, it doesn't exist, but it will help. It's a good thing for the world. So the climate change that doesn't exist is good for the world. Mm. Uh, his logic is but, amazing, isn't yeah. it? His logic is good. You can tell how him and Boulder are a pair. <laughs> yes, you can, can't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll be pleased to know that following Donald Trump deciding to give tax cuts to American big business, 
that so won't help him out at all. So it'll trickle down, yeah. Australian business now says it's even more imperative than ever now, but they get tax uh, cuts as well. So we too can generate work and jobs and all the things these things do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and I've got one more I'm going to tell you in a second because this one will thrill you. You won't be able to... How did you get here this morning? I walked. You walked. Well, you, you can drive next week. You can drive next week. I'll, I'll, right. tell, you, I'll tell you why you can drive next week. Um, Rolls-Royce has just launched its new Phantom 8. Ah, okay. Cool. Yep. <laughs> and you can snap one up for as little as a million dollars. Oh, well, I'll pick you up on the way. If you want a top of the range... Oh, you know, it goes up from there. Oh, okay. that's, yeah, that's. The, I mean, if you want to spend a bit more on specifications, uh, you can spend at least another hundred to hundred and fifty grand on specifications over and above the million. But uh, so, so if you spend in the upfront money, you might as well. Yeah, look forward to seeing your new one at the back yeah. in the car park next week, uh, Andy. <laughs> I mean, if people. Oh, never mind. I mean, that such that cars could cost so much, and you know, then, mm. then you drive out and pollute the world. It's very good for a million dollars. Um, this there's a big controversy also in the US because of all these these um, football players who have been kneeling during the national anthem, oh, which has yeah. upset Donald no end. Donald's attack on them is about their disrespect for the flag and for the country and the anthem. And I know, but how does he treat women? You well, know, and how isn't that reflected the same? Well, and indeed what they're protesting about, which is um, the treatment of blacks by police, the fact that they yeah, just well, yeah, shoot them on sight. Mm. Um, so he just ignores all that. But there's a thing because his vice president, Pence, went to a game and then stormed out when they kneeled, but it was, it's been suggested that it was all a a press gimmick, mm. that he already had the car, the engine Still running out running. the front, told people not to leave, and uh, Donald instantly, uh, almost before he left the ground, was saying how wonderful that he stood up to these people and how awful it was. And it was his idea or whatever. <laughs> whatever, yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> so, so there you are. And I just thought one other one I'd mention, uh, you'd be pleased to know that Gina Reinhart, um, she's um, she's hoping to export more live cattle to China, but they purchased another Northern Territory cattle station. Now, these huge... This is a 200,000 cattle um, herd number. She's going to have... Um, on target to build up herd numbers to about 200,000. This is her private company. And this one's, you know, thousands of square miles, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And she's buying it. It was once owned by the Sultan of Brunei. So here's Gina Reinhardt buying it from the Sultan of Brunei. This is all land that the indigenous people of Australia owned until these people came along. Mm. They don't seem to get much of the money that's floating around. Mm. But she's she's got all, she's got this cattle empire. And we mentioned the other week that uh, Twitty uh, won a Kai Court case keeping miners off his own pastoral land while he as a miner reserves the right to go onto everyone else's land as a mining company. Mm. And now the miners, the big mining companies, are very upset about that because they're, they're finding they've, a lot of their leases are being taken off them because of the High Court ruling. And Gina's expressing real concern that miners might be limited in terms of going onto private land, and this is a terrible thing. But whether she'd let miners come onto any of her pastoral properties is another question, isn't it? Yeah, they're all hypocrites. Uh, I suppose she would because she, she wouldn't, she'd be a person of principle and so she, you know, she'd, she'd realise that um, they have a right. If she has a right to go on theirs, they have a right to go on hers, I suppose. I don't know how. Yeah, Gina. No, I think. Yeah. No. Okay, look, we'll t- now, we'll, now we'll take a break and I'll having given my usual ridiculous rave, we'll get back to something sensible. Sounds good. Okay, on the line we have Professor Paddy Moriarty. Professor Moriarty's on the line. Uh, Paddy, uh, thanks for coming on because, I, as I said earlier on the show, you're a standby guest today, but uh, you've been good enough to stand by for us. Um, but just before we start, you haven't been, you've been um, laid up recently. Are you coming good again? Yep, pretty good now. Good. Good, lovely to hear it. Um, the uh, just before we go on to a couple of other things, I wanted to talk about. Uh, there's an item in the last couple of weeks that a mob called EasyJet, uh, working with a US company, Wright Electric, they want they're trying to develop a battery-powered plane for short flights. They claim that within a decade, they'll be able to fly. Uh, 570k routes, which would be things like London to Paris, um, Sydney to Canberra, etc. Uh, and in 20 years, they reckon that uh, every short-haul flight will be battery-powered. Is that is that viable? Um, 
Well, I've been here before. Uh, if you go back 40 years, they said that by the year 2000, all planes would be uh, would be hydrogen powered, right? Uh, clearly, that hasn't happened. No. Um, uh, now, it, obviously, the shorter the flight, the more practical it is to use batteries. I'd be sceptical myself. Um, I'd be I'd be panic stricken. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, even lithium batteries. Are, and also, I'm not too sure if it's a if it's a very efficient use of electricity. In other words, obviously they'd be charging these batteries on the on the ground. Um, now, at present, uh, I, I, I'm not certain why they're doing this, apart from perhaps selling batteries. But if they're talking about climate change, at present it wouldn't help much, right? Because the electricity electricity is mainly fossil fuel powered, and um, therefore um, you'd just be replacing fossil fuels used to charge batteries instead of using uh, Avtur which is also a fossil fuel. Mm. So um, I don't think you'd really be far ahead. No, unless you were using renewable to charge it, of course. Which... Yeah, but then you have to have a systems approach. For instance, in uh, Norway, um, they're leading the world in electric cars, right? Mm. And nearly all their electricity comes from comes from hydro. The trouble is that they export hydro, and the more electric vehicles they use, sure, they cut down on the, on their petrol use, but it means that they have less hydro to export. Therefore, the countries that are importing their hydro have to use more fossil fuels to generate their, their electricity, right? Right. It's an interconnected world, and you can't just look at one country or one region. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, look, we'll let that one slide for the yeah. time being, but we'll see. But it's uh, just I just wondered whether it was even viable, but they just, this little item was staring at me. Um, in the last few days, um, Rod Eddington, who did that report for Victoria that recommended the East-West Link, has come out again. He was speaking at um, at the Grattan Institute, I think, or somewhere. He's speaking anyway somewhere this week at some meeting. And he's saying we really have to build the East-West Link, and he's going on about roads. It's really important we press on with public, with, well, he says public transport as well. But he says you can't charge your way out of congestion, so he opposes a congestion tax. And he says we now need, having focused on rail, we now need to focus on road as well. Have you, have you noticed the emphasis on rail that's put roads into the background, Paddy, in the last few years? <laughs> well, coming from Murrumbina, of course, I, I can see this huge, <laughs> huge structure going up there. It's the most impressive. Look, I think sooner or later, two things we're going to have to do. One is, I, I read some of the other day that the Australian economy is based on holes in houses, right? Holes meaning mining and this building boom, which is uh, Australia's population growth rate is 1.5%. The world's population growth rate is just a fraction over 1%, right? So in other words, we're having this... Australia's uh, 26 years of uninterrupted GDP growth is being driven by this unsustainable um, mig mig migration, which, of course, then means that infrastructure, um, more infrastructure has to be built and so on, other things being equal. So as I say, we have, instead of... Um, we now have a... Uh, uh, a desal plant. Not that we've ever used it. Um, we now have to put uh, rail we've up We've paid a fortune for it. We just haven't used it. That's yeah, which is fortunate, <laughs> I guess. Uh, we're putting our rail up in the air and so on, which is going to cost billions. And now uh, more freeways. What we have to do, two things. One, we have to cut back on immigration, which, of course, is a federal matter rather than just a state matter. But the second thing we have to do is demand management of travel. Um I've said this before, but in, a, in say, 1947, Melbournians travelled about uh, 4,000, 3 to 4,000 kilometres a year by, by vehicle. And nobody complained that they were travel deprived then. Mm. We now have three or four times that. And um, where's it all gone? In fact, we have three or four times the per capita vehicular travel levels, and yet there's been a huge amount of suburbanisation. In other words... The actual, if you take an LGA in Melbourne, uh, in 1947, what we had was a huge surplus of any area jobs in uh, Melbourne, of course, but also Fitzroy, Collingwood, Richmond, mm, and so on, yeah. and dormitory suburbs, which meant, and also um, the amount of shopping and entertainment that was done in the centre was huge as well. In other words, most people lived in the suburbs and went to the city for their work or entertainment or anything else. 
Now there's much more suburbanisation of activities, which should have cut travel. Instead, it's increased four times. What's going on? Yeah, I'm going to take that as rhetorical, Patty, unless, you, <laughs> unless you've got the answer yourself. <laughs> In other words, we have to take... It's called travel demand management, and it's being talked about now, but they say it's you know, only marg- it can only be marginal and so on. But in other words, we've got to shift from mobility to access. What people want to do is access out-of-home activities. They don't necessarily want to get in a vehicle to do it. Mm. Well, how do you address that issue then? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, as I say, partly by removing the convenience, and this is pretty heretical, of car travel. In other words, we've um, given car travel privileges, which, when you, which when, if we look back in 100 years, we'll think are pretty amazing. Every, every garage, every spot in Australia is joined to every other spot by a road. Mm-hmm. You can go anywhere. Um, in other words, there's no places where cars are restricted, right? So, um, and humans just have to take their um, life in their hands to get across from one, from one side of the road to the other. And so, so, in other words, we're going to have to remove the privileges of given vehicles, which means partly lowering the, um, the speed. And this, uh, below 30 kilometres of an hour, for instance, um, traffic accidents and traffic deaths would have decreased markedly. Most pedestrians can survive a less than 30 kilometre an hour impact. Above that, especially above 50, it's, it's much more unlikely. Secondly, it would mean that uh, other modes of travel would become more attractive, especially non-motorised transport, for two reasons. One, they'd risk, they have less risk getting killed. Secondly, their speed would now be perhaps more favourable. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, they, they'd get exercise and so on. And, yeah. and also, it's cheaper. Yeah. Years ago, when you and I were in a group called the Melbourne Transport Study Group, we argued yep. that we used to criticise then, I think it was Big Roads or whatever they were then called, Country Roads Board or something, um, uh, for the fact that they, they took it that people had a right with a car to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible, and so you built roads to facilitate that. But we also argued that congestion can be a form of train traffic control as yeah, long as you yeah. provide viable alternatives to people. Well, look, the thing is, congestion is an inevitable result of cities. That's why people go to cities, so that they're close to other people, right? That's one of the attractions of cities and one of the reasons why they've been powerhouses of, of the economy or, or creativity and so on, right? Mm. It's because of the congestion. It's always been that way. And it's a camera to, to think that you can um, avoid congestion. Yeah, well, now, of course, business talks about congestion as being a cost and, and of course, the usual government uh, going along with them. Uh, so every time you get congestion, they they look for some solution to it, which is more road space somehow. Well, again, it's a system approach you need. From what I can gather, in um, earlier times, Melbournians spent less time travelling than they do today. Sure, the speeds were lower, but they spent less time travelling. In other words, um, their, uh, you know, travel was more efficient then than it is today. So... Sure, we can build the east-west link, and what it'll mean is just um, people travelling more, perhaps faster, but overall their travel time needs will will increase, right? So, so they, they won't come out ahead. No, in fact, the the, head, the headline on this story about Eddington is get on with building roads, Eddington. I mean, he, he just wants to keep building more and more, he, and he, he offers it as the answer to congestion, which seems to defeat the purpose. Well, it seems to me that um, the amount of people employed in construction in Victoria, I mean, when I see all the equipment and men and women used to build, say, this Marambina Skyway, Stairway to Heaven and so on, I'm just amazed there's anything less for... for it's the same here at Monash, right? I mean... Carter Newman might have written a book about the idea of a university, but now it seems the main function of a university is to provide employment for the construction industry. Yeah, and, that, <laughs> and indeed, that's another that's another question we could go to. But certainly, uh, increasingly, uh, they're suggesting that research should be geared to what business needs and wants, rather than its own for its own sake. Yeah. Um, and that's you know, and more and more they're talking about business investing in universities so they can come out the other end with um, with what they want. Yeah, look with um, with uh, road investment, as I say, you you have to take a systems approach. For instance, in, in Tokyo, which is a very congested city, and of course it's true that 
let's say, uh, that the pollution per kilometre driven by a car in Tokyo will be greater than Melbourne. But because they drive so much less, there's far more, uh, there's far less uh, air traffic pollution caused by cars than there is in Melbourne, for instance, mm. and so on. Um, you're aware that I think in France and England they're talking about banning internal combustion engine vehicles entirely. Yes, by 2040. Yeah, and uh, yes. the mayor of Paris... And China has made the same... China hasn't put a date on it, but it says the same thing, actually. Well, in fact, uh, electric vehicles are selling extremely well in China as well, and electric bicycles have sold 30 million in China. Mm. So, um, yeah, it looks like uh, they're taking that seriously, yeah. Yeah, notice GM came out against it. Um, General Motors came out against it, saying that um, you know they needed more. To, the usual line: they need more time to adjust, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and advised the government Australia not to even think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the electric vehicles, of course, are, are being introduced often by by companies that aren't the traditional car companies. Yeah. Mm. Like Although they're, they're, they've got. They're working on electric vehicles themselves, but they're still saying they need. Well, they apparently they apparently they sell more cars in China now than they do in the U.S. GM. Um, that well, they do according to the article I read. That's what that said, and that that's why they're opposed to China coming out and making that statement. Uh, yeah. So yeah, see what happens. the The other thing that's been happening, of course, in the last few days, Paddy, has been this whole thing about gas. Um, an incredible pressure from business to say that the problem with the energy and gas is that Victoria and New South Wales won't let them get at all the gas they want to get at. And if they could only get at that, all our problems would be solved. Uh, thoughts on that? Is this, uh, coal, is this uh, coal seam gas? Yes, coal seam and all sorts of things. Yeah, they've, they've been, they're really putting... There's real pressure coming on to, to try to force the Victorian and New South Wales governments to lift their moratorium on on. Mining coal seam gas, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I think the uh, arguments against, environmental arguments against have been well rehearsed. There's another interesting one. I mean, I don't think that um, uh, carbon sequestration will ever will ever get very far, but one of the places they want to store it is um, it's in uh, 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 depleted coal mines and so on, and it's interesting <laughs> that these two could conflict with each other. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, in fact, looking at um, uh, uh, fracking, which is the other way of getting gas, right? Mm. They're worried about um, whether that could co- whether that could cause earthquakes, and of course, uh, shale formations where where uh, the shale gas comes from are also the prime locations where you'd want to store carbon dioxide underground. Now, two things here: one, of course, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of holes drilled to extract this um, shale gas and you have to hope they're all filled in, right? Otherwise, you've just got a direct uh, uh, pipeline to the atmosphere. Secondly, um, it turns out that fracking itself can cause earthquakes, especially the um, uh, because of the pressurisation, which is to, to fracture the uh, shale formation, to, uh, and, but also to um, when they... Uh, when they uh, store wastewater, the polluted wastewater underground, right? Yep. And um, further, um, storing carbon dioxide underground itself can cause minor earthquakes. So what this could do is that the very act of storing carbon dioxide underground itself could generate uh, minor earthquakes which could Im- impair the, uh, the capstone integrity and therefore allow carbon dioxide to escape to the aquifers, to the drinking aquifers or even to the surface. So there's a whole lot of problems there with this sort of... Um, in fact, in general, um, human activity is causing more earthquakes, right? Whether it's hydro dams. In fact, the uh, big one in China, um, some people say that that was caused by filling the dam too fast mm. and so on. And certainly in uh, India, 200 people died. That's certainly been tied to a, uh, to a, a reservoir and so on. So um, we have to be pretty careful... Uh, of any sort of underground mining now, we have to think of earthquakes and so on, as well as usual risks of um, pollution and so on to the surface. And the US, of course, is allowing fracking all over the place, so they, anything could happen there, although they're already, because they're already copying what would we'd consider to be absolutely extreme weather, both with all the hurricanes recently and now these massive fires in uh, California. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, every year the, we get more extreme weather, yet you get people like Tony Abbott telling the Flat Earth Society that it doesn't exist. 
Well, it's interesting. I was reading an article yesterday by uh, Miles Allen, who's an Oxford uh, climate modeler, and he's in the forefront of suing large energy companies for, for carbon dioxide for, for its damage. Oh. Now, in Britain, uh, he's, from, he's from Britain, um, uh, in Britain, the, uh, the courts say, look, that's a, um, the government is dealing with that because they've decided to do something about limiting carbon dioxide, right? And the word was that in America, uh, the more far-sighted energy companies didn't want America to pull out of the of the uh, of, Paris, of the, of the Paris Accord. Agreement yeah. because it meant that there was no government policy in place to restrict carbon dioxide, and it was them. So it's very yeah. interesting to see how how yeah. court cases could could go in America. So so is he going is he going to take legal action in Britain? Well. He's been trying to, and in other countries they're doing it as well, because, as you know, in America, courts is the only way you actually get anywhere, yeah, that's right. given that the political process is stalemated. And class, or at the state level as well, I guess. They run riot with class actions, of course. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting in America that a num- quite a number of states have said, despite what, what Trump has said about Paris and pulling out of it, that they're going ahead and pushing ahead with all sorts of steps to uh, to conform to Paris anyway. Well, yes, it's it, it's been said that maybe the states and cities themselves can meet the uh, Paris targets, right? Mm. Uh, California certainly has plenty of uh, incentive now. Um, I mean, it's only a statistical thing, but uh, wildfires are increasing worldwide and, and um, climate change must be one of the candidates for this happening, right? I mean, there's fire management practices and building in places where people shouldn't, which, of course, is a worldwide phenomenon. And this idea of rebuilding, um, I mean, after the hurricanes, these are just places that people shouldn't live. Um, What's happened is that in America, they've got flood insurance, and so this encourages people to build on floodplains where they shouldn't be building, right? Mm. They've just got to move someplace else. Although insurance companies now in those sort of areas are making the premiums so high that people really can't afford them anyway. I mean, yeah, uh, well, that's probably not a bad thing, right? No, I've, I've often I've argued on this program before that in terms of climate change and business, insurance companies are the canary in the coal mine because they yes. they know, and they 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 certainly increase their premiums where climate change could affect a property. Yes, certainly. Um, uh, Munich Ray and uh, and so on have yeah. been at the yeah forefront of have they what yeah patty okay look we um thanks for filling in today um no problem interesting stuff and we will we'll talk to you again in two weeks because i do want to have get you involved with dave Kieran on some of the renewable stuff they're up to and uh, talk about that as well look forward to it okay thanks patty bye thanks a lot patty moriarty there from monash who uh is um he re- sits there researching away on transport and energy issues and then comes and tells it all about it yeah, um, brilliant yeah, okay, Andy, thanks for uh, keeping us on here. No worries. Next week, I don't know if we've got a partner next week or not who's back, but wow. I, think, I think they're all still away. But no, next week's housing, so we'll have April, hopefully, April. April. I'll, talk, I'll talk April Braggy to come in and co-present with us next week and then be a guest in the second Sounds half. Sounds good. Till then, um, that's it. Talk to you next week. Mm.